We own 100% of everything. That That's our goal, you know, is to keep continuing to grow how we're growing, but um, owning 100% of it. It was definitely a little bit of a risk. I just, I knew the upside and I knew we were going to figure it out, right? We we're going to figure it the hell out no matter what it took. You need to buy at a discount. And in order to buy at a discount, it's going to have to be distressed. Passive wealth trifecta. Appreciation, debt pay down, cash flow, boom. Welcome to Behind the Rise podcast hosted by the Perino Brothers. My name is Angelo and I'm joined by my brothers and business partners, Lucho and Valentino. On this show, we will speak to successful local, national and global entrepreneurs, as well as discuss lessons we've learned in our 15 year career building a nine figure organization. We're in the middle of our journey now and want to share with you all the wins, losses and lessons learned behind the rise. So guys, today we have a very special guest, somebody that I've been following for a long time. I'm a big fan. We got Sam Prim on the show today. Welcome, Sam. Appreciate me. Uh, appreciate you guys having uh, me. Yeah, no, dude, we, this is an honor for us. So we're we're pumped to learn about everything you do. So a little a little bio uh, about Sam. He's got forty five million dollars in rentals owned using all other people's money. He's got two hundred eighty rental doors. He buys three hundred houses a year. Eighty percent wholesale, twenty percent are flips, and he's got two point three million followers on social media. So we got to, and that's, that's where, uh, obviously where we found Sam, I follow him. I've been, he's been motivating me for a long time. He's a family guy, right? Um, you know, and, and he's been on his journey, you know, becoming a, a real monster in the rental, in the real estate game. So we're, uh, pumped to have you on. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm excited to dig into some things with you guys, learn a little about your crazy family and, and hopefully, uh, teach the audience a few things. Yeah. Perfect. Beautiful. So Sam, let's uh, let's go back to you know the beginning, right? So, you know, where are you from? Where did you grow up? You know, um, what were you like as a student? You know, kind of bring us through your journey. You know, to from where you started to you know where you are now. Yeah, for sure. I'll, I'll give the Cliff Notes version because it's not super exciting, which I think is exciting. I've been leaning on that mantra mm-hmm. for about the last twelve to eighteen months, and it seems to really hit home. So. I'll kind of briefly talk about that, then go through my journey. But I'm really, really normal, which I used to like shy away from. You're not going to write a book about my life, at least up until maybe I I started uh, investing in real estate and going into the business world. But I'm like super normal. I don't have this rags to riches story that my buddy Kong, if anybody's on social media and real estate, they know him. He grew up in a mud hut, came over here in America, picked berries, sold the hair extensions. And, you know, so he has a really cool story can make a movie about. And then we got the Ryan Pinatas of the world who I'm buddies with as well. That's like a Filipino Ken doll, right? So I'm just like a normal dude from Missouri. I didn't, don't have a rags to riches story. Grew up in Missouri, right outside St. Louis. Um, dad was an engineer. Mom was a teacher, had a brother, got one pair of uh, shoes a year before the first day of school. Uh, packed my bag or packed my lunch every day. Um, you know, going to school, my parents didn't want to pay for, didn't want to, or couldn't afford to pay for um, school lunches. But you know, I, I didn't want for anything. I just didn't have a lot, if that makes sense. So super normal, uh, good student. Um, you know, I've always done pretty well on tests. I don't know if I'm super smart, but I'm able to at least take tests and kind of figure out answers. Um, you know, got good grades. Played sports growing up. I uh, was decent at sports. Kind of, you know, one of those guys that was. Captain of the football team in high school, played quarterback, captain of the basketball team, you know, played. I got a few offers to play at some small colleges, but I knew I wasn't going to go pro. So I just wanted to have fun in college. So I just went to a normal school yeah. and, and didn't go to one of those small schools. So, um, flash forward to, you know, graduating college, I went into the real world and, and got a job just because that's what my dad did. He worked at one company for 40 years and that's what everybody I knew growing up did. I didn't grow up in an entrepreneurial household or anything like that, right? Just grew up in a normal household. Thought I was going to work for one or two companies for 40 years, hopefully retire when I'm in my early 60s, and that was going to be it. Well, I learned a little bit about entrepreneurship in college. Me and uh, my best friend at the time, um, you know, started a painting business and we started painting houses and fences and decks and kind of got that itch and kind of helped my um, loss of sports and the competitiveness and the wins and the losses and all that. I kind of was able to feed that beast a little bit. But then when I got a full time job outside of, you know, college, that was kind of gone. It was a sales job. So there was some of that, but I, you know, didn't have that kind of entrepreneurial or competitive itch being scratched. So that's, you know, and we can kind of take off from there, but that's kind of when I started uh, investing in real estate. So I graduated in 2011 from college and then um, about 2014 timeframe, about three years in the quote unquote real world, uh, Lucas and I, that same uh, uh, business partner from college I talked about started uh, dabbling in real estate on the side. Hmm. 
So when you started dabbling, so you were working a regular job, then what made you guys want to start like dabbling? Like what, what made you pick real estate? Like what, what led to that? Um, so I, I think it was, gosh, it's so cliche. Um, rich dad, poor dad, right? So I, I saw a couple amazing books yeah. behind you guys that I've read as well, but rich dad, poor dad just kind of opened our minds a little bit and then, you know, uh, to get into real estate. But we had been talking about what business should we get into on the side? You know, our goal wasn't even to quit our jobs right away, at least, or it wasn't mine. It was just to, do something on the side and real estate is just so prevalent. The barrier of entry is so low and I don't have to invent an app or, you know, buy a storefront to, to do it. I don't need a franchise fee. You can just do it for wholesaling, no money, no credit, or you can get into, I'm sure what we'll talk about today, creative financing to buy rentals or flip. So it was just one of those things where it just made sense. I, I knew the stat that 90% of millionaires are created through real estate. Um, so I thought, why not go with what works and just try to put my own spin on it? Yeah. So you said it right there. The barrier uh, to entry is low. And that's like a huge misconception in real estate, right? That a lot of people think I need a ton of money to buy real estate. I need a ton of money to get into it, right? Um, that is the common misconception by, I would say, a majority of people that just think it's unreachable, right? That they think the barrier to entry is huge. And I think that's really the key to the story here. Yeah. They need not, they need, especially around Massachusetts area, right? So we're in Massachusetts. The average house or multifamily around here is what, 800 grand? Yeah. At this point, like a three family is a million bucks. A million plus. bucks. Yeah. So if I'm a normal folk, I don't know much information. You know, we're thinking, okay, I need 25, 20 or 25% down on a million dollars. I need 200, 250,000 liquid. Plus you need to show all that income. Just to show the income, didn't get the bank loan, all this fun stuff. So especially in our area, you know, real estate is, is quite expensive. I'm not sure exactly what your first purchase was. Do you mind telling us what your first purchase was and where yeah, for it was. sure you guys uh yeah any 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 insight you need on anything like that uh obviously ask but yeah my first my first um property was uh it was i bought it to fix and flip it so i didn't know about the refinance method or the burrs method we'll get into in the creative financing thing i mean i did know you could borrow money to buy real estate i remember watching flipper flop on hgtv and um tarka musa who who as you know teaching real estate now and things like that on social media, he would like go to his uh, buddy's house or whoever it was. It was like a lawyer that had extra money and the guy would give him money and then they would split the profits. So um, that guy would be the funding source. Right. So I knew you could borrow money, but I didn't know about the long-term financing, the banks and, and all that kind of stuff. So I thought you got to put 20% down on a rental property. Everybody knows that. I don't have 20% down to put a rental property, neither did Lucas. So in order to get that 20% down, um, you know, I have to raise money and might as well do that, you know, fixing and flipping and getting that extra cash because we didn't have it. So that's what we did. We we borrowed money from a private lender. It was uh, kind of like a business friend or friend of my dad's that we had known for years and we'd been working on it for six or seven months to give us a loan on our first property. And we finally, he did that. So we bought the property for like simple math, like 75,000 bucks, right? And it needed probably 40 grand worth of work, but we did the majority of it ourselves on evenings and weekends, like most people do when they get started. And we put about 20 grand into it. So, you know, we had 95 grand into it. The plan was to sell it for 125, 130 grand. And then now we got sitting on some cash to put down on a property. But during that process, I understood and found out about the Burr method and the refinance method, meaning that property is worth 125, 130. I owe 95,000. Now, granted, it's, it's not my money, but it's paid for in cash. So there's no, you know, mortgage recorded on the property. So, you know, what we did was we took it to a bank and they said, yeah, it's worth 125. We'll give you a loan for 80% of that. So they said 80% of 125 is 100 grand. We'll give you a loan for $100,000. So here is a check for 100 grand. Now you owe us 100 grand over the next 25 mm -hmm. years. And so we got the property rented. Uh, I took the hundred thousand dollar check, paid back our private lender their ninety five grand that we borrowed, plus five grand of interest. They're happy. They made their money. We owe hundred grand now. That's broken up over twenty five years, and the rent pays the mortgage plus all loaning expenses. So it just completely blew my mind that I know these are small numbers and things are more expensive now, but it blew my mind that in the right market with the right property, you can sweat equity, creative finance your way into moving come other people's money around. Everybody's made whole. And at the end of the day, I own that property. And that property today is worth 220 grand and I owe about 60 grand. So that, you know, that initial $25,000 of equity between what I owed on it, what it was worth is cool. It's not super sexy. No one's going to like brag about 25 grand equity, but in a relatively short period of time, eight years later, it turned into 160 grand equity, which is more than the average 401k in this country. So it just goes to show that you can get creative. And if you have that long-term mindset that you're not trying to make $100,000 tomorrow in your checking account, 
that you can really create wealth if you can get creative and have a little bit of that, um, you know, some fancy footwork and a little bit of a long-term, you know, instant gratification delayed uh, for a while. Yeah. I mean, what a beautiful thing that, that right there, that little clip right there, if you listen to it, really break it down yeah, exactly. what, you, what you did and, and you're able to do that, you, just one of them and you start scaling. I mean, that's, that's the yeah. secret sauce. Where right did the down payment come from? Did I miss uh, that? No down payment. So um, private yeah, the, lenders, it's, it's a relational business. They're not like, um, you know, say this to you guys with my hat in my hand. They're not the mafia, mm. right? They're, they're not like the mafia or a rich yeah, exactly. uncle, right? They're, they're not some <laughs> this Fugazi person that has $10 million in the bank. It's your, your, it's your parents' boss. It's your grandparents' neighbor. It's your neighbor. It's somebody that has an extra 50 grand, 75 grand, a hundred thousand dollars. They're working professionals, usually W2 job in their forties or fifties, maybe sixties. And you have a relationship with them some way or some shape or form, or you develop one over time that they're willing to give you a loan to purchase and fix up a property. They'll give you one loan for that in cash and you pay them back either upon the sale of that property, because there's profit there if you did your numbers right, or upon the refinance with the bank. So it's literally no money out of pocket, no down payment. Now, there are down payment options if you have a little bit of money or your own line of credit, but we didn't have that when I got started, and most people don't. So you know there are like hard money lenders and things like that that will want some down payment. But I did that with that property, and I've done it, you know, we sold some rentals. So I've done it over 300 times since then um, with apartment complexes, with single family rentals, with some self-storage facilities. I just bought a hotel um, that we're going to turn in short-term rentals using private lenders in a bank. So once you develop relationships with these banks and these private lenders, they're going to talk to their buddies. There's some vanity there at the country club, wherever they are, you know, or wherever at their, you know, drinking with their buddies or out with their girls, whatever it is. They're going to talk about how they made 12% return annualized on their loan with you. And then you're just, it starts to grow. And again, it's one of those things where most people go through their phone, they text everybody one time and they give up because that's just what people do. They want it to be easy. This, this whole process we'll get into, it's not really hard, but it's not easy. It's somewhere in between. And most people want things to be easy. And if it's not easy, they give up. So anyways, not to go on a little tangent uh, right now, but it's, it's something that just, it takes a little bit of effort, but then it really does start to snowball. You just got to get past that point of inflection. That's why I feel like the real estate and things like this is so important for like these real estate courses, because a lot of these things you can duplicate. Like it's such a teachable, duplicatable mm -hmm. model. You know what I mean? Like there's some businesses that like it's really hard to duplicate and the, you know, to recreate the magic is really difficult. With with this type of business, it's if like the information is so valuable. Mm -hmm. Just the exposure to this information, the exposure to these methods are just so important. Right. Yeah. So you have a lot of fly by night people doing they flipped one house and now they created a car. Don't right. get me started with right. that. Yeah. <laughs> what with the fly by night? The the one yeah, if someone does it once and then they're selling yeah, they're, course. They're, they're professional. Yeah, that's overnight. part of the reason I got into it, because I remember somebody had done like five bird deals and they wrote a bird book. I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? You've done it five times. And at the time before I started my social media education, that was in 2020, I had a hundred, hundred rental property. You know, I felt like I'm not going to teach something I don't feel like I'm an expert at. And I'm not even teaching on short term and midterm rentals yet. I'm starting to, and I'm putting that into my mentorship and starting to create content around it. But I have, I have 22 of them now. So, um, you know, it's one of those things where I, I just drove me crazy that people without the experience tried teaching other people how to do it, or they wrote a book 20 years ago, um, you know, or right now, there's so many people, this education has high potential and it has high profit margins and it's a good business to be in, but everybody's trying. I see almost every day I see somebody create a new course or launch a new something because they've done it a couple of times. So yeah, it's uh, there's a lot of that out there. The, the real ones though can fish through that. I mean, we can. People with experience, I feel like we can fish through the bullshit on social media, yeah. that we can see that this person is good at selling courses, but he had, didn't do what he is saying that I he know, did. But the you know problem is, though, the people who are going to buy the That's course the are probably people who don't have experience. So they're looking right. at That's whoever's the, the flashiest on Instagram, whoever's, you know, putting out the... Whoever's sitting in front of the Lambo, taking a picture of the rented Lambo, like all that fucking That's the big shit. problem right now with, with on social. It's, yeah. it's hard to decipher the real versus the, versus the fake. You yeah. Know? You got to do some research before you buy those courses and go to those masterminds. You got to really understand who your mentor is. Yeah. But if you get hooked up with someone like Sam, like as a, as a mentor who's right. done it, for as long as he has, as consistently he has, that's, that's the magic. Like that is invaluable. Like you said, like, how can you put even a number on it? Because once you learn how to do it, you know, you can turn that into an infinite return on investment. And just to give us an example, we've been in real estate for quite some time. My brother's like a GC by trade essentially. And we own around 60, 70 units of real estate and having a conversation with Sam like this could really expedite even our 
real estate portfolio, our strategy moving forward. Yeah. You know, and we have a lot of experience, so it's not. Yeah, no, selfishly, like I want to learn about this. Like this is like our, our little course here today, you know, and I hope, <laughs> I hope all the, you know, the listeners, you know, get the same value that we're going to get out of it because we've always been the traditional, you know, we're not going to do it unless we have the money to put down. You know, we're getting the, the financing ourselves from like a traditional bank. Normally what we do is we'll put like the 20, 25% down ourselves. And then we'll even, we'll even put the, um, you know, we'll pay for the construction money out of pocket. So we don't have to deal with the construction loans and everything. And we'll try to create value in like a multifamily, you know, we'll buy a, you know, a multifamily that's all two beds. We'll convert them to all three beds, get them re-rented and then hold them. But we've never played like the refi game, the way you said, using other people's money, then refining out. And you know how many people have told me like, why are you doing that? And it's slowed down, it's slowed down our growth significantly because even over like the last like three or four years, we haven't bought nearly as much as we probably should have because we, you know, we run other businesses too. And we're always concerned about reinvesting into our businesses. So we're never, we never want to be low on, you know, liquidity. Right. So because of that, it's hurt our growth in real estate. But if we were experts in this field, felt comfortable with it, you know, and we have, you know, enough network to be able to do it ourselves. I mean, to do it, to raise money from people, you know, and do it exactly like, like Sam is teaching you know, we would have hundreds and hundreds of units by now, but we were raised old school. Like if, you know, you got to do the money, you're not taking other people's, you know, that's just yeah. our thing. But I really want to open my mind to the way Sam is doing yeah. it because I think it's absolutely genius, you know? Yeah. So let's bring it back to Sam for a second. So after your first deal, you got, you got the money out, um, you rented it. What was like, what happened next? Like, what was your, was it an aha moment? Like, whoa, let's blast this thing out of the water and to a hundred of these things? Like what was the next step after yeah, that? Yeah, it was definitely an aha moment during that process. It took, you know, longer than it probably should have. It was probably a sixth or seventh month rehab and, and granted, we did a lot of the work ourselves, but we had another one under contract already. And um, Lucas and I, you know, is, we've been friends since we were, you know, in, in middle school, played sports growing up and then went to college together. And, you know, we were thinking that this could be pretty cool. We started to kind of the light bulb went off a little bit, but we didn't know how big it could or was going to get, but we knew we wanted to continue to buy rentals. I think, um, you know, by the time we refinanced that first one, we had the next one under contract. And I would say just roughly um, in the first like year, we probably did two or three of these. The next year we did seven or eight. And then that next year um, we really started to ramp things up. So it took us a couple of years because we had full-time jobs. Um, you know, just, you know, I started in 2014, 15 timeframe. I uh, had my first uh, kiddo in 2016. So, you know, it's just time. You don't have unlimited time like, you know, anybody does. But we we started to kind of really put it together about year three. But we just were slowly adding rentals or not slowly, I guess, but we were adding rentals this this method in this way. And our plan was let's replace Lucas's income. I think he was making 65 or 70 grand at the time as a, a newer engineer in the space. And I was doing pretty well in my job at this point, but we were wanting to get him out of his job. So we were like, all right, let's buy this many rentals to cash flow this much per door that will replace your income. And it takes a long time to, you know, buy that many rentals. And your guys' way of investing is incredible. It's really cool. Not that many people have the extra money to spend and put down. And you guys have a crap ton. I mean, 60, 70 units, that's more than 99.9% of people. So the very few people have that capability to have that kind of money though. So we didn't, um, and we w- didn't even at that point. So we had to borrow to grow and not to go down too much of a tangent here, but that's what, I mean, that's how most of the businesses in the world grows. You know, every company you can think of started out with a loan. So as long as you're utilizing that loan properly, that's how businesses scale and grow no matter how much money they have. But we just kind of started to get our feet underneath us. And by about year three, we're like, I think this can be something special. So let's, we both put our jobs in 2018. And then when all in and since then is really when it's really taken off. We own 45-ish million right now. I would say probably 35 million of that has been in the past three or four years. So a majority of that has been backloaded as we've oh, yeah. scaled, which I think is is natural for any business, no matter what industry you're in, honestly. So when you were starting, was there like a specific criteria and why? Like, was it the suburbs of Missouri? Was it single families under this? Was it low income? Like, did you have a very specific strategy you guys were going after or was it more broader? So we, we started broad, which I think is a, a, a bit of a mistake a lot of people make at the beginning of their um, investing career. They're like, yeah, I'll buy anything and anywhere. And then they get all these deals sent to them and they're, they can't or don't want to buy in every location. They're just, I don't want to miss on a deal. And then it just becomes white noise and nobody remembers them. So 
we went through that. We were like trying to get everything we could. But then as we realized this certain area of town we wanted to be in, which St. Louis isn't a big city by any means, but there's, you know, it's still plenty big. So the, you know, a certain 40% of St. Louis that we wanted to own real estate in, we kind of started to hone in on that. Um, we were doing single families at the time. We weren't into the multifamily game or anything like that. We weren't even in the wholesaling or flipping game. We were just trying to buy rentals as I was kind of alluding to earlier, trying to replace Lucas's income. And we quickly realized that three, 400 bucks a month net income per door is going to take a long time to replace a $65,000 income. And that's not even the best way to do that, to just live off rental income. So we quickly realized you need that mix of passive and active income. So that's when we started wholesaling and flipping because let's get some chunks of money to replace the income. Then we will um, be adding rentals in the background and focusing on that because there's not much cash flow. And I don't think you should really even touch that cash flow, especially at first. But our buy box kind of narrowed down as we got a little more experience and realized what we wanted. Houses built after 1960 in this area of town, two, three bedrooms, um, those kind of things we started to narrow down as we went. And that just made us experts in that space, in that part of town. We could underwrite it very quickly. We knew what the rents were probably going to be. So we could um, spot a deal pretty quickly because we were a little bit more narrow, which is another advantage of starting narrow. So since then, you know, we've grown into multis and and self-storage and things like that. But I really think a big key for us was getting that that buy box and that that core focus down, as you mentioned. Hmm. Now, how are you underwriting a deal? So like you're saying, you're able to look at it pretty quickly. Like, what are the numbers you're looking at, right? Because, you know, a realtor or somebody's bringing you the deal, right? You, you know, are you, you're going to see it physically. Okay, I think it's, this is what I can buy it for. This is how much I'm putting in. This is what I think it's going to be worth. After, is there like a certain percent you want to, you know, make sure that you're going to get in, in future value after it's fixed. So when you do refinance it out, everybody's paid back in whole. Like, can you just walk us through quickly, like how you would underwrite Yeah, a deal? for sure. So um, it's called the max allowable offer formula. And so you take what the property is going to be worth after it's fixed up. So if you're looking at a three bed, one bath uh, or three bed, two bath, 1500 square foot house in a certain area, it's distressed. So that's the kind of key that um, I guess I assume, but should not assume that all the listeners know all these properties I'm buying, they're all distressed. I'm not putting 20% down on fixed up properties. I'm not putting 20% down on distressed properties that I'm fixing up. We're buying distressed properties, 100% finance. So in order to get that discount and create that equity to not use any of your own money, you need to buy at a discount. And in order to buy at a discount, it's going to have to be distressed because retail ready properties just sell for right near market value. And there's no, there's no equity play to be had there to be able to, you know, not use any of my own money because Banks don't care about 20% down cash. The banks that you guys give to don't. They just want that equity. They want to feel secure in their loan. They don't want to take that property back. So that 25%, 20% cash you or anybody else is giving these banks, that's fine. It goes on their books. They're able to kind of leverage it, but they don't really care about that. The main thing they care about is that equity that that cash creates. So in order for me to create that equity without the cash, I have to buy at a discount to stress. So anyways, getting that out of the way. Um, so yeah, we we use the max liable offer formula, which is ARV times 70, 75% minus repairs. And I'll, I'll quickly break the formula down. There's only, there's two main parts. It is the first part is ARV, which is after repair value. So what the house is worth after it's fixed up. But I, I know you guys know this, but we're kind of doing it for the listeners, but after repair value. So what yeah. the house, that three bed, two bath, uh, you know, 1500 square foot house, Look in that area that you're looking at this distressed asset in and try to find three, three bed, two bath, 1500 square foot houses that are fixed up that just recently sold in the retail market to a family. What did those sell for? Find out, you know, similar, they don't have to be exact same, you know, square footage, but within a range of square footage and was sold recently, because that's what the banks are going to look at when they refinance you. That's what a seller is going to look at if they're looking to, or a buyer is looking to buy your property if you flip it. So you're just getting the market value and you want to get recently sold as possible because that's what the market is based on recent sales. So you just do a little bit of work and find, you know, some properties in that same area that have sold. You multiply that by 70 or 75%, which not a math wizard, but that just builds in your, you know, 20, 30% profit margin there. And then you subtract out all your repairs or costs, which is going to be, nobody knows for sure. Everybody, all four of us would come up with a different budget for the exact same house. But in general, you can get conservative and know how much this house is going to cost to fix up. So you subtract that and some holding costs in there. And that's what you offer. So for simple math, this house is a hundred thousand dollars. It's going to be worth a hundred grand fixed up. It needs $20,000 worth of work. So I take 100,000 times 75% is 75,000 minus 20,000 is 55 grand. So I'm going to try to get that thing for 55 grand or less. And if I do, 
and I ran my numbers right and I was conservative and it's really worth probably 110 and it really needs probably 15. You know, I did 120, so I was conservative on both ends of it. If you do that, then um, you'll be safe and you'll be able to refinance out or, or flip it and make money or even you can build it a wholesale feel and wholesale that out. So it's just a formula that sounds complicated, but if you run it a few times and run it on fake deals, on real deals and analyze things, it, it comes kind of like second nature and you can just quickly look at a deal and and, and figure it out. And then if you're going to keep it as a rental, you just have to take the cash flow formula, which is what the rent's going to be. Again, you find that by looking at for current rent and then you subtract all your expenses, which are, are they're all fixed. It's going to be what your mortgage is going to be. You should know that because you'll know around about how much you'll be in it for and what the interest rates are. Minus your taxes, you can find that. Minus your um, insurance, you can get a quote on that. Minus your vacancy, just do a percentage. Minus your maintenance, a percentage, and a property management. So you can find all of that out between your max level offer formula and your cash flow formula. And you can get within a certain range that, hey, if I buy this, it'll make a great rental. Or, hey, if I buy this, it won't cash flow, so I'm just going to flip it. So take a breath now, but that's kind of the the, the mm. ways we underwrite things <laughs> and look at them. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, you know, you make money when you buy, right? And like you said, well, something I thought it was really important there, like, you have options when you're done with it, right? If you buy it right, you can have multiple exits, you know, multiple options for an exit, you know, so you're safe. Like if you can't sell for this much, but you have to rent it, you'll cash flow. You know, if you need to wholesale, you bought it, you bought it cheap enough that you can wholesale it. So when you, when you buy right, you know, you're safe because you're giving yourself three or four ways out of this deal at the end, in the middle, or, or even when you just bought it, right? I think the other thing that's important too is when we, we've, we've interviewed another uh, real estate guy who, who owns what 3000 units or 2,500 units mm -hmm. or something of that nature. And the key for him is he really uh, specified in one specific market in our area was East Boston. That was where he became an expert at. And I feel like that narrow thinking in real estate is so important to become an expert in that one market before expanding because it's mm -hmm. in real estate, it's tough to say no, right? Like we're in Massachusetts. Some, some of the margins here are a lot smaller. So we automatically think, okay, let's look at Ohio. Let's look at Indianapolis. Let's look at Chicago. Let's look at some of these other markets that could have better margins. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's tough because we're like, well, should we jump to this market because the margins are tough here or should we become an expert? Oh, yeah. We've gotten screwed area? like four out of four times looking at markets that we didn't know about, whether yeah. it was like permitting, you know, there was a different thing on permitting. We we literally bought properties in, um, I, they're still active, so I won't even say where they are, but we were supposed to be able to split the lots and everybody told us that we could split the lots into two single families. I'm talking the engineer, the lawyer the surveyor, the realtor. I had them all on a call. I went around the room and said, can we split these lots without, you know, like by right? Yes. Yes. I said, give me your percent, hundred percent, 98 percent, 99, hundred percent around the room. The minute we bought them, I go to do the application to split them. No, they can't be split. So if that still, was still worked out, it still worked out because they, you know, we, I don't want to say we got lucky, but there was a, another way to do them that we, we were able to not split them, but build two units on that same lot. Um, but that's just, you know, an example. If it was in your market that you're very familiar with or in East Boston where that other person was familiar with, like that shit doesn't happen because you know better, right? You've learned over time, you know, what to do. Right. Um, so one little difference from how he does things to, you know, what I wanted to ask Sam is that when he does like a multifamily like this using other people's money, I know when he refis out, he'll pay back his investors, but he keeps them on as like limited partners, right? So they still own, they own the property. I actually think they own a majority of the property the way he does. It. I'm not too sure. Um, I'm not too sure like the oh. lingo. Uh-huh. So who does it? That's like how people, oh, I yeah. know that done it around here. They'll, they'll use other people's money to buy it. They'll use some bank financing as well. If it's a bigger project, once the property is stabilized and rented, they'll refi it and they'll pay back their investment, but they're still in the deal as owners, as like a, I LP forget the term, like an LP, exactly, like a limited partner and whatever the other term is. But um, is that how you do it? Or are you always refining in, in your investors or making a cash return and moving on and then you own the property, even if it's a multifamily, single family, or do you have strategies for both? Yeah, no, I that's definitely a strategy a lot of people do. That's like the next scale level. It's one of those things, would you rather scale and do more 
and own, you know, part of a watermelon or would you rather own the entire grape kind of thing? So I, that's what a lot of people do. I mean, mm-hmm. Grant Cardone, that's what he does. He has whatever point one point two three four whatever billion assets under management. He owns a very, 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 very small percentage of that, which is still a big number. So that's really cool. And most people with thousands and thousands of units, that's how they do it. They bring in partners and they keep them on the deal. A lot of times they just pay them a pref, uh, you know, a preferred interest, eight, 10% a year, whatever, 12%. And then they don't even pay them exactly. their lump sum back for years and years or ever, as long as they wanted to have the money in the deal. So that's a great strategy. I don't love it though. I haven't gone down that path yet. I think, um, that's one of the reasons I'm building a brand on social media. If I ever do want to, you know, Sure, plenty of accredited investors follow me. I can, you know, raise money like that for that. But no, we do it the other way. I like to own everything 100%. So if I ever give up ownership in something, it's for a very short period of time until that refinance or I get cash from another project to pay them back. So, you know, Luke's and I own everything 100%, so 50-50 each. But, um, you know, we own 100% of everything. That That's our goal, you know, is to keep continuing to grow how we're growing, but um, owning 100% of it. We could scale and have a, a you know, rather than 280 whatever units I own I don't even know I could have you know you know 2000 um and own 10% of it or 5% of it and there's nothing wrong with that model I'm not trying to dog grain or or your buddy but yeah. I just like to own 100% of everything and I think the way I'm doing it I still can scale it um at a decent level and still own 100% of it so yeah we 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 if somebody's in on the deal it's for a short period of time and then upon refinance we pay them their money back and then they're they're out of the they're out of the LLC if they're ever on it um uh, we've done multifamily deals different ways I think have a, a 32 unit, 29, 27, uh, 19, 12, and eight, I think, or nine somewhere. Anyways, our six apartment complexes, I think like three of them, we creatively did it with them as owners for a little bit and then paid them back. And the other three, we never even gave up ownership. It was just a pref, uh, you know preferred interest and, and buyout dates in the future. So that's another beautiful thing about these private lenders and these small local banks. You can get crazy creative. You're not using Fannie money or Freddie money, or we're not using people we don't know that want, you know, crazy things. You're able to get flexible depending on the deal. If it's cash flow heavy and you need money to um, repair, or if like the cash flow is a little tighter up front, you can backload, um, you know, their payment upon refinance, which we've had to do on deals. So it's, it's, you can just get creative, I guess is the best way to put it. And and it's pretty tough to do that when you're borrowing money from accredited investors, you don't know, or things like that. They want to know something simple. You know, when you're dealing with people, you know, you can say, here's why, we're giving you 5% interest these next two years, but then on refinance, we're going to give you your money back plus another 7% interest annualized each year. So you're getting your 12% return. It's just backloaded. So anyways, you can have conversations like that uh, as you build relationships. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. It seems cleaner too. Like I know the other way. way Yeah. It's like a a fund and this and that, but you're doing it like per deal. Like, you know, like you said, like you're structuring this deal on this project, you know, when it's done, however it is, you get your your interest, and when, once it refis, you get your money back plus your lump sum. Everybody's happy, and then you move on. The other way, there's like a disclosures, and you got to be accredited, and there's all all these things. So there's positive and negatives to both, like you said. Um, but personally, I think the way the way Sam's doing is more replicatable and yeah. more more doable. You know, especially for someone starting out. So I have a question too. So when at 2018, you guys said you both went all in. What were you doing full time before? Or while doing both. Yeah, while doing both. So before that, so from basically, so we bought our first project in mid-summer of 2014 and we refinanced in 2015. So Luke's and I have a playful argument and he says we started 14, I say 15. But anyway, so from 2015 to 2018, um, actually, since I graduated college, I was uh, selling a Caterpillar construction equipment. So I was into sales and then kind of worked my way up into sales management and um, had a job that I really liked and I got paid very, very well. Um I was making, you know, 250 grand a year in St. Louis. It's a lot of money in some markets, maybe not as much, but I was, I was doing very well for myself and, and I enjoyed my job a decent amount. So it was, it was kind of risky to, to quit that because it's a lot harder to replace 250 grand income than 60 or 70 or 80 grand. There's just the numbers. There's just way more, you know, um, way more jobs that Mm -hmm. pay 70 Mm -hmm. grand than 250 grand. So it was a little bit of a risk. Um, and, and I didn't honestly make, that amount of money for for two years. It took me, you know, growing a business, starting, screwing up, figuring out how to manage people. Um, you know, it's different managing sales guys. I had 12 sales guys under me and employees and, you know, marketing and, and accounting and finance and all the things as we were growing and hiring and doing all the stuff. So I didn't make as much money there for a couple of years. And then, you know, things started to click and really do well. So it was a little bit of a risk and it was a little bit of a haircut for a while, but um, it was never, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't that bad. 
And you have a wife and you had like a two-year-old at the time, right? You said Yeah, she was two at the time. Exactly. Uh, yep. Child was in 2000. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's a ballsy move, man. I mean, that's, um, that's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. So you, you essentially quit before that, the time of your real estate surpassed what you were making. Cause some people, what a lot of people do is they'll be at like, okay, I'm going to quit when the money actually a hundred percent substitutes what I'm making. So if I'm not 250, my side hustle finally got to 250, then I quit. So you quit when you were like, let's just say I was making like 80,000 a year or whatever. And then you waited for it to creep back up. Yeah. Right? Just, um, we were, you know, knewing, I knew I was going to, we were going to really ramp up our, um, flipping and, and our wholesaling and, and hiring people to do that. And just, you know, the idea of, you know, having other people work for you and start to make money and do all those things. Um, you know, it, it happened slower than I thought, honestly, but you know, I thought I'd get back to that very pretty quickly, even that first year. And we did pretty, pretty well, but we were a lot like, we weren't like, our side hustle stayed the same. Our side hustle turned into the big hustle. And so we were able to go from spending 10 hours right. a week on something to spending 60 hours a week on something. So th- I thought it was going to happen quicker than it did, but you're exactly right. It was, it wasn't quite there yet. And the company were still growing and, and things like that. So yeah, it was definitely a little bit of a risk. I just, I knew the upside and I knew we were going to figure it out, right? We we're going to figure it the hell out no matter what it took. So what about the wholesale? So when did you get to the point, because we talked a lot about the refin- refinancing out and all that, but when did you introduce wholesaling to your business and why? Probably 2015 or 16, so maybe a year, year and a half in, because everything our first eight deals were, were all rental properties. Um, I think we did it because we, I don't even remember, I think we just stumbled into it. We came across a property, um, I think somebody brought it to us, and it just didn't make sense as a rental. The the at max level offer formula worked out, but the cash flow didn't. I don't remember if it was too high price point or too low of a price point, but either way, it wasn't going to positively cash flow, even though there was equity there. So I think we just um talked to some people at a local meetup and you know, say we had a deal. And at that time we figured out what wholesaling was just by talking to people and going to meetups and stuff. And we I think we made like 10 or 15 grand. So a good little chunk of money, but that was like, wow, that's that's where the active income can come. That's where we do five wholesales a year, make 15 grand. There's your incomes replaced, Lucas, kind of thing. Let, let's let's kind of add this into the arsenal. And we know how to rehab property. So, you know, next time we come across one, let, let's flip it. So it just kind of organically happened. I don't know if there was an exact moment, but that's when we're like, okay, this is where that active income comes from. Because even to this day, we we don't we don't touch our rentals and you know, we're growing our rental company and our management company, but we have these other companies that were growing as well for that active income. We're we're close to crossing that 50, uh, 50 employee mark right at 46. So our goal is to continue to grow that as well. And nice. um, you have to create more income and more properties and more leads and more businesses to do that. Um, you know, you can only, you know, you only want to take out so much cash flow to pay people from your rentals. So, right. Now, are you guys doing the construction yourselves on these projects? Or are you, are you subbing all the, like the GC work out or are you guys Doing the construction. So we have project managers um, that that manage. So we have one that does like our rental turns and our rental rehabs with the Burr method, and then we have another project manager that does all of our fix and flips for our flipping company. That's enough for both. So uh, yeah, we so we have project managers, G, uh, you know, general contracts, whatever you want to call them, in house. So we kind of have control of that, and then we have you know subs that do all the things, and we have enough business that. We have over the years built a pretty good, um, a pretty good A team of subs that, you know, prioritize us or mainly work for us. They're able to lean on and call and not have to get, you know, three bids on everything, you know, which we did for a while. As you guys know, that's important to do at first. But then when you develop a relationship, um, you know, you can. So these, these guys are managing the projects and their goal is to build an incredible relationship and communicate with these subs, get them what they need and then build a B team. That's been huge for us because you know, even good contractors are going to raise their prices up until like, eh, it doesn't make any sense, or they're going to go out of business because they did something stupid or they get divorced right. or they sell the business. So uh, it's really important for us. We've after, you know, if getting, I wouldn't say burned a couple of times, but kind of running into some um, roadblocks to have a, a, a team, a B team, a C team, we kind of call them. So have your, 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 your starters that kind of do all your projects. And then if they're gone or busy, um, then you kind of have your, your B and C team to lean on. So that's a big part of those guys' jobs is to go visit other contractors, talk to them, meet them, go to meetups and just develop a bench for us. So we're not waiting on labor to get a project done because there's nothing more frustrating than that when you got money out and and it's uh, interest being charged on it. And then your project's sitting there with nobody at it for a few days or a week. That that drives me crazy. Yeah. I mean, relationships and construction with subs and stuff Huge. is so big. It's, you know, like you said at the beginning, you're, you're pricing everything out. But once you have your guys and your crew that are loyal to you, that that's worth more than any, you know, couple percent here you might save on a job. I mean, it's you've learned it time and time again, every time 
we've gone against that. We've paid we've paid the price. So you know, having your guys, you know, your crews that you can depend on is is huge. Um, so now we've been talking about the Burr method the whole time, but can you explain? you know, what the acronym means just like quickly, like a quick summary for, for people who might not know what it for is. For sure. Yeah. I've done this a lot so I can keep it quick and succinct. Um, so this, the Burr's method is stands <laughs> for buy, rehab, rent, refinance, and scale. And it, it's how I've been able to buy that 40, whatever million dollars worth of real estate, you know, with this method, because it works on single families, duplexes, um, quadplexes, apartment complex, self-storage. It works on anything that you can add value to and that produces cash. So um, we'll just quickly go through it. So Buy. So you buy a distressed property using somebody else's money. Let's say, let's use that same example earlier. You bought that house for $55,000. Use a private lender's money to buy it. So you buy that distressed property using somebody else's money in cash. They, they give you money for it. And then you rehab it using that same private lender's money. And there are other funding sources, but let's just keep it simple with private lenders. So you need 20 grand. So that private lender writes you a check for 75 grand because you looked at it, you know how much it needs. So you take that 75 grand, you buy the house and then you fix it up. So you have $75,000 of a private lender's money in the deal. You owe them their money back plus interest. They didn't just give it to you as a gift. So buy rehab. The next process is rent. So get the property rented, turn it into a cash producing asset. So start to get the property rented. Most private lenders, everyone I've ever dealt with and know, they'll let you pay them back, uh, you know, their entire principal plus their interest at the end of this deal. So now that the property started to produce rent, you have a proof tenant in there. It's a very, very quality asset. It's recently rehabbed and is producing income. Small local banks salivate over something like this. So then you, the next step is the refinance step, buy, rehab, rent, refinance. So you go to a small local bank, they'll appraise that property. If you bought it right with a, a max liable offer formula, there's that equity built in. So then, you know, this property appraised for 125 grand. So the bank will write you a check. They will hand you a cashier's check for 80% of the appraised value which in this case is a $100,000 check that they gave you because it was worth 125. And then you take that $100,000 and you pay back your initial private lender, their money plus interest. They're ecstatic. They met you for a beer and handed you a check and you meet them, you know, four months later for a beer and hand them a check. So they didn't do anything and they made 10, 12, whatever percent return on their money. They're very happy. And now you do owe the bank that $100,000, but you're getting that rented in that third step and that rent, if you ran your numbers right, We'll cover the mortgage plus all owning expenses. So now you have a property with equity that you don't have any of your money to buy it or maintain it and you're getting a little cash flow and you just got to be patient and let that um, let that equity grow over time and you know increase that by doing more and more properties. That's what the scale step is. It was repeat. I changed it to scale because I like it better because I think most people want to just learn and get better, not just go back and do what they did. But anyways, without getting into the scale part of it, that's kind of the method in the nutshell. Was that good? That makes sense? No, oh man uh, whoever was you know everyone take out your pen rewind that watch it <laughs> and, and write that shit down that was right on the money yeah I, I get a question after you do the refinance right what are you looking for uh for a return like cash flow wise or do you care much about the cash flow return or is it more about the appreciation yeah we, we definitely do so let me introduce you to gentlemen the passive wealth trifecta hashtag faster free original so um <laughs> we definitely look at the cash flow and i'll, I'll kind of tie that into it but so we try to get 200 to 300 bucks a month net net cash flow. There's not like an IRR return because it's either infinite or zero because we're not using our own money. So we try to get that. And that's after all expenses. We're talking insurance, maintenance, future vacancy for when the tenant moves out, like, um, you know, uh, insurance, taxes. So we, we account for everything. It's not just like maybe we're getting this. It's after everything's said and done because those are all hard costs. The, the cash flow formula, the only very, really variable is how much you'll get for rent but you have a freshly rehab property. So you're able to pretty much maximize that compared to what the market's doing. So that's the cash flow side of it. It's nothing to write home about, but you're not anything out of pocket usually or very little if if a bigger expenditure comes up. But you talked about it earlier, the, the, the appreciation side of it. So this is where, not to brag here, just a, a cool number out there that we, I, just, I just actually recalculated. So I make $10,000 a day with the passive wealth trifecta without doing anything because I own enough rentals that every single day they go up a little bit in value. And yes, the market shifts, but in general they go up and a lot of them are apartments and they don't go down really when the market shifts. It's based on income and that stays the same. So every single day my properties go up a little bit in value, but also every single day, no matter what, the rent pays down the principal balance. So that that separation, they're going in opposite directions, but working for you. So property go up in value, tenant pay the mortgage down. That adds up every single day. Plus, if you add on the, the positive cash flow after all expenses paid, that's where it gets really cool. It's when you're doing nothing and 10 grand does go into my bank account every day. I'm not saying that, 
or at least through this business, but it's, you know, it does happen. My net worth goes up that because those properties are going up in value and the mortgages are getting paid down. And that's real equity that I can utilize and refinance and, and put on uh, net worth statements and things like that. And then you get the cash flow kicker that's tax free because of depreciation. So passive wealth trifecta, appreciation, debt pay down, cash flow, boom. Wow. Love that. Boom. Do we have a sound effect? Costa, put it in. <laughs> Mic drop. Boom. Put it in. You also, you mentioned something that is like a, a buzzword nowadays, and we've always been interested in it, uh, is the whole self-storage world. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you got into self-storage, why you got into self-storage, and kind of the story to, that led you yeah, to it? Yeah, self-storage is a very interesting story. So got into it, I'll talk about, um, tor- uh, we had a, a self-storage building blow over three times, lost 150 grand, and now we're selling it. So we'll go through that quick cycle. So um, we got into self-storage, Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Um, <laughs> bought a 12-unit apartment complex in Troy, Missouri, which is probably 45 minutes out of St. Louis. It's 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 a pretty I mean smaller town, 15 20,000 people, so it's not like a, a one stoplight town, but it's smaller. So we bought a 12 unit out there and it at the back of it it had like 12 self-storage like doors, like a big long self-storage building. Some of the units were rented to random people. Some of them were rented to tenants. So that kind of piqued our interest in it. It looked really cool, it's kind of fun. This was probably 2000 and 17, maybe 2018, around that time frame. So, um, you know, we've been doing it a little while and um, we thought that was pretty cool. And then um, come probably 2000, uh, you know, that was just a simple thing. That's a very small um, facility. Then about 2019, we got approached for that same town, a, um, a 66 unit self-storage facility with two acres next to it. It was, it was, you know, they were sold together and some siblings, adult siblings inherited from their parents. There was like three signs on the front that had different phone numbers, no website, just soup, you know, just mom and pop to the like to the T as far as like being mismanaged. So we're like, let's let's buy this. And, you know, we offered a price on it because we were new into it. And and the the siblings were like, no, we're not selling it for that. And we're like, all right, well, peace out. Well, COVID hits. They're like, holy crap, let's get what we can now. So our $300,000 we were part in price. They came right down and we were able to buy it and get a pretty good deal on it. So we, um, you know, figured oh. out, you know, that two acres, we were going to build a couple more buildings on there, do some boat and RV storage. And we bought the material for that light, um, gray buildings, blue roofs. So we painted the existing buildings, light gray, blue roofs and got it ready for it. And we built a couple small buildings and we're like, this was super easy. It was like, you know, contractors doing it, putting together, you know, like, just metal buildings, like putting Legos together, super easy. So we're badass. We're awesome now, right? We're store self-storage experts. So rather than do outdoor boat and RV storage, let's put up a big fucking 260 foot long, third, 20 feet high indoor boat and RV stores. Cause it does, they rent for more and we're awesome. So they're way harder to put together. We did it. We put it up and then we had like the, the alleys in the bays. Sorry if you can't say F word, bleep that out, Costa. But anyways, you, um, no, no, we no, love we're it. big on the F word. You good. Our, my podcast is rated E as well, just in case. Um, so anyway, so <laughs> we were doing that and we had a couple of big, you know, not tornadoes, but pretty big storms. And in those 40 foot long, you know, a little bays, the wind like straight lined and it blew the back wall off of this 260 square foot, uh, or 260 long foot, um, building. Not once, not twice, but three freaking times because, A, we weren't putting it together right. Our contract was over his head, and we just, you know, anyways, nightmare. I ended up scrapping the building, and we called our insurance, and they're like, um, you know, hey, can we, this is act of God, can we get our insurance money back, uh, insurance for this? And they're like, uh, we have two buildings on your builder's risk policy, but, you know, me just doing too many things, we put those original buildings on it, like I said, and and you had insurance on that, but- we didn't uh, plan to put that third one up, but we got big heads and thought we were badasses. And we just kind of decided to do that third one and it wasn't insured. So anyways, that ended up costing us, uh, you know, about 100, 150 grand as far as, you know, materials and lost labor and all those kind of things. We ended up just scrapping it, wow. cutting our losses and and just doing the, you know, putting gravel out there and boating RV storage. Fortunately, we got a really good deal on the front end. So when we refinance that soon, um, well, when we were going to refinance soon, we were going to recoup that loss. But now, now we're selling it just because we bought another facility as well, and we just don't love it. We're underutilizing it. We're not, we're not self storage experts, and I get that it's all management, but it, it, there's differences. You're supposed to keep like 85 percent occupancy and continue to raise rents and get little fees here and there, and it's just a pain in the butt. We don't like it. We're not good at it. Um, so we are actually in the process of selling uh, two of those units, not the one that's the back of the building. You know that that small one. We're keeping. 
that because that's part of the building. But the other two, um, we're actually under contract to sell right now. And we got a good enough deal. Um, even with all those screw-ups, we'll still turn out all right on it. So there's my self-storage story for you. Awesome. You buy right. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. You buy right. You love that we lost money. I get it. I get it. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. No, I love I no, love no, I love when people no, we do like all the time. To me, so, I love when I think people we're the do, only ones that admit it though. Yeah, we're I love yeah. when people come open and honest, hands up. Yeah. We've lost yeah, so many. I mean, so hundreds many. of thousands, you know, hundreds, hundreds of thousands on different deals. So for us, I, I, when people open and talk about it, I'm like, fuck yeah, dude. I'm, I'm with <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, you too. Brothers. Uh, yeah, brothers, blood <laughs> yeah. brothers. But yeah. when people mm-hmm. just pretend as everything good and dandy and rainbows and sunshines and they never make mistakes, they don't lose money, it's like, that's a red flag to me. You're lying about something because there's no way you're 100, you're 100 for Oh, 100. gosh, no. We're, we're not batting that. You know? We're doing all right. But yeah, we definitely had our, our fair share of mistakes. Yeah. yeah. So random question, what are your thoughts on Airbnbs for rentals? Do, do you do anything So we've that? gotten into the space um, recently. I feel like um, maybe a little bit late, not late. I mean, I know the Airbnb industry is kind of um, seeing a little bit of a bubble pop right now. I don't think it's going to completely burst, but we never really got into it. I thought, you know, I learned about it a little bit, was doing so, all this other stuff and trying to not get too much of shiny object syndrome. So we never really looked into it. And then about a year, a year and a half ago, I was like, this is probably too late to get into it now i feel like it's oversaturated so we didn't and then um you know the more we looked into it uh we decided to off some of our apartment complexes we turned a couple of the units into short-term rentals so you know talking about cash flow per door you know apartment complex is a little bit more scale than you know controllable but you know the cash flow is not quite always as good so we get 100 to 150 bucks a door you know at the bottom line statement um, from every apartment complex per month but turning, you know, we, I think we've turned three units into short-term rentals now. We're able to get like twelve, fifteen hundred bucks per that net net for that one unit. So it really just adds some cash flow um, padding to it. It increases the net income, which increases the value and all those things. So we've dipped in that space a little bit. Um, but then we ended up buying a, a hotel, a, a hotel motel um, down in uh, Branson, Missouri, which is like a basically a redneck Vegas um, down in uh, Southern Missouri. And um, it's a really very popular area. And um, we're turning that um, 19 of those units. It was like a resort kind of thing. There's three bedrooms, two bedrooms, one bedrooms. It's not just like a, you know, one little studio hotel rooms. And we are actually in the process of turning that into all short-term rentals. So we have a few here. Now we have a, a decent sized project down there in uh, Branson that we're turning all those units into it. And that was a really good deal. So I don't hate it. it it's kind of becoming a little more necessary. I'm teaching a lot of my students now about uh, short-term and midterm rentals. You know, midterm rentals are, are kind of a mixture of both. You know, you're renting things out at three and six month increments to traveling nurses and corporate leases and things like that. So, um, yeah. and you don't have, you get more rent than a year long lease. And you don't have like the every other day move out, clean out kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good with short-term rentals as long as you're, you know, not buying an overpaying for a house on the beach. You'll never be able to sell. I think it has its place, but I think it's just a great strategy. It's a lot harder to cash flow at 8% than it was at 4%. So it just gives you an option to continue to buy. I, I always tell people like, let's not let other people determine if I'm going to create wealth or financial freedom or not. Let's not let the government determine it. Let's not let the economy determine it. Determine it. Let's not let interest rates and not, let's not let, you know, any real estate market, let's not let outside things affect me. So I'm just going to figure out ways to get creative and navigate whatever's thrown my way. And in that, you know, kind of getting into this midterm and short term rentals is just a, a way to continue to stack assets and cash flow. Um, and we always do it to where we could end up returning that to the hotel or doing long term rentals. So I'm a fan as long as you're not, you know, as long as you're not like going all in and buying a market price house, you know, on the beach or something that you're going to be able to sell. Yeah, that's my only, that's my exactly what you just said. That's my only qualm about buying an Airbnb, like property that was already Airbnb prior is that they value it with that Way Airbnb. Too high. If it's, you, take those, you can't underwrite it. It needs to be able to underwrite, you know, with like a long term strategy. So that way you have your downside in case Airbnb goes away. Or if something happens in that market, you're able to to survive that. So that's my only issue. That's why the hotel it. market is so nice because it already comes with that existing license. It's kind of like Airbnb proof. Like the, right. the city or the, the town can't come in and say, oh, you can't do Airbnb anymore. Like, listen, I have the hotel license. We have a friend of ours in Massachusetts who's doing that in a town called Salem, Massachusetts, which I'm sure Salem, like the Halloween, whatever. And he's uh, turning that into an Airbnb. And it's it's bulletproof because, again, the town can't come in and say, mm-hmm. no, you can't do that. Exactly. So one of the things you brought up there is, and this is one of the questions um, I wanted to get in with you, is, is um, 
with the market conditions right now, right? The interest rate going up, inventory's down. How is that affecting your business? How are you navigating that? I mean, I've heard from so many people, you know, people waiting to buy. They're waiting, they're waiting, they're waiting. <laughs> They've been waiting for like 15, 15 years. 15 years, I was going to say. So like the, the my question for you is like on, on um, you know, trying to make money on deals, like how was the interest rates affecting your your situation? How, you know, what's your what's your strategy with that moving right now navigating yes that. definitely makes things a little bit more difficult to cash flow we're not going to put our head in the stand and act like it doesn't do that we've in our flipping business we've wholesaled to a lot more fix and flippers than landlords it seems like you know 2018 19 20 21 everything we were selling was to landlords that were going to fix it up and, and keep it as a rental with with the burrs method we talked about earlier of course, we sold the fix and flippers that, you know, properties that wouldn't work as rentals, but it's kind of shifted because as you mentioned, you know, while interest rates are higher for the residential loans as well as commercial loans, people still need to move. Life still happens and people are still buying. And historically, we're pretty average as far as, um, you know, especially, um, you know, retail, um, you know, 30 year mortgages. So people understand that. So we're selling more to fix and flippers. We're doing a few more fix and flips ourselves in that business. So just able to kind of navigate and bob and weave a little bit with the market. And as far as like buying rentals to cash flow, again, we're looking at midterm, short-term rental options, but we're also just getting a little bit tighter. Um, it was so easy. You could overpay over rehab and still make a huge profit on your flips. You could overpay over rehab, but you're you know, profits were there, your equity was there and the rentals went up so much that you could still cash flow. Like it was too easy um, over the past few years. So that is not normal looking back and probably looking forward. So that little short little blip of anybody and their brother and mother could do it and, and do all right is gone. So you just have to stick to the fundamentals more. Right? There, there's kind of four quick main things that I tell people to still cash flow even at, at 8% interest. And it's make sure you're getting market rent. Most people don't know what market rent is. They do a little bit of research. They look at the rents estimate on Zillow and they charge that. Most likely you're a little bit light, especially if you're using the Burr's method and you have a freshly rehabbed house. You have the best rental on the market and you want to get the best tenant. So again, make sure even if you're 50, 100 bucks more than you're getting right now on rent, make sure you're maximizing the, the current market rent. That makes a huge difference. 100 bucks more a month in rent will navigate, you know, at least a half a point, if not a full point of interest. And then also make sure you're um, shopping these small local banks. You want to build relationships, don't have 20 of them, but between the two or three you work with, shop them because these small local banks can charge whatever interest rate they want on top of the Fed's funds rate. So some will be a six and a half, seven, or probably not six and a half now. Some will be seven and a half. Some will be nine and a half. So shop around and get the lowest interest rate possible and then amortize it over 25, 30 years if possible. So rather than a 20-year note, which is kind of the go-to or was for a while, if you can get that 25 or 30 years, that's going to give you more per, per month. And then lastly, tell a lot of people to manage themselves. Usually I say hire that out if you don't have a backbone or you don't have time and just you know pay a little bit of money to get off your plate. But if you manage it yourself, you can save a little bit of money. So if you do all four of those things and kind of conservatively underwrite it, that's four or 500 extra bucks a month you can get. And if you just do a couple of them, that's still may make uh you know break even negative 50 buck a month cash flow positive 200 so just kind of sticking to the fundamentals and just actually kind of bearing down on that could make a huge difference in whether something's a dealer or not so that and then different you know exit strategies as far as who you rent to is kind of how we're shifting mm, yeah, great advice and then what about there's a every person we've had on the show the the covid story like what was your quote covid story every single person we had on the show had such a different and interesting story with how they got through COVID in the original fear. Do you want to talk a little about kind of when COVID hit, what was going through your mind with your business and how did you guys navigate through? Yeah, so that great question. So a couple of things. When COVID hit, um, we were didn't know what the hell was going on, right? The basketball season was shut down. You know, they shut everything down. We didn't know what what was going on and, and what the world was going to do. The entire world shut down. So we were definitely scared. Uh, we talked about it a little bit, and um, I know a lot of people that laid off employees and a lot of people that kind of stopped buying. Um, at first, we just kind of kept the status quo. We kept our marketing budget the same for our flipping company, and you know we continued to add rentals. The banks we were working with um, continued to fund. Um, so we kind of kept pushing through, but then we, I think, kind of quickly realized that um, this was one of those things that Human race wasn't going to end. We were going to get through. And uh, if anything, it was going to cause people to stay home and not sell. So inventory was going to get even worse and even lower or better, however you look at it. So we we went all in. That's we bought 
fifteen million dollars worth of rentals. Um, you know, halfway from you know probably May of twenty 2020 twenty to twenty twenty one. So we just stacked on rentals that are just exploded in value, as everybody knows what the real estate market did. And then as far as our rentals go. We really prided ourselves up to that point in approving really quality tenants. We look at their bank statements. We um, look at their their credit of obviously we call their previous landlords there for a while. We were even visiting the current house that they rented or our team was to see how they take care of it. Um, and we were really communicating with them. We treat them with respect. We treat them fairly. And most of the time that is returned. And we just had a really good process of approving quality tenants that could afford where they lived. It took us probably three weeks longer to approve our first tenant than most people, but they stayed and they were good tenants. And that, that showed itself because during COVID, um, there was a couple of iffy months, but, um, overall during, let's say, you know, April of 2020 to, you know, whatever end of 2021, when things were kind of settled during that about, you know, 17, 18 months, we collected 98% of rent, um, still because we put the right people in place before. So it really showed that all that extra work that was kind of, made me not want to do it and hire people to do it really, really paid off. So um, we a little bit scared, then we put the pedal to the metal and then kind of the systems and process that we've been putting in place really showed to be a positive thing because a lot of this stuff I'm talking about, these bigger deals and all these things everybody wants to do, but you can't do it right away. You have to start with one rental. You have to give one private lender their money back. You have to get approved with one loan from the bank. And then as you build relationships with contractors and banks and lenders, that's when you can start to take swings at these big deals and buy a 42 pack of houses that we bought last year and do all these, these really cool things. But it doesn't happen overnight. You have to build these relationships. And then eventually when the time is right, you know, all the stars are aligned and you can strike. And I guess that kind of showed itself during COVID. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> this has been like an incredible like masterclass of a conversation. Yeah. Right? I mean, how much shit has been learned in this like, one hour? A like, lot. Fucking action pack. Yeah. And fast, <laughs> and fast forward to, because you even mentioned like management. Now you said you have uh, students. Do you want to talk a little about what you're doing today? Like fast forward, we went from 2000. You know, fifteen, eleven to to now. What what are you doing today? You have a management company, and kind of what else? Yeah, so there's three main things that uh, main businesses that I have. Um, The first one is our rental company. So we buy our rentals, we own them all, and we manage them all in house. So we manage everything in house. We have an amazing team uh, that does that. Then we have our flipping company. That's you know our biggest company as far as employees go. That's you know I think 2022 of the uh, employees are for that. You know, that that's growing. We bought 312 houses last year. This year, we're going to be down a little bit because we have, um, you know, the market just contracted a little bit. And then the education company, which is the thing I started in 2020, um, summer of that, I've been focusing on that for the past three years, um, as you guys have seen. Um, so I've been focusing on that. So I just give away as much free information as I can, like I am doing now on social media, get as many eyeballs as I can, help as many people as I can. And then there's a percentage of those people that want their hand held and want to pay me to help them more. So I started a mentorship and this isn't, isn't a pitch for that at all in, in um, like end of 2021. And in the past 16 months, we've had 17 months, I guess, whatever it is, we've had, um, we've had 1300, just crossed the 1300 um, um, student mark, uh, which is a pretty cool number. And uh, those students oh. and the coaches that oh, I have yeah. coaching those, which were former students own 200 million in real estate. So it works and people are taking action. Wow. It's not a magic wand, but it's a grooved path. Oh, yeah to create success almost every single week a student's buying their first rental property and getting in it, even in today's crazy market. And we're kind of like an insurance um, analyzer to help them, you know, get through these kind of crazy times and then really take off. So that's been my focus is getting eyeballs and then um, the people that want to pay more, pay more, but obviously not not trying to twist anybody's arm to do it. And that kind of approach and not posing on a rented Lamborghini and not like doing all these braggadocious things. I, I flex every once in a while just to get the algorithm engaged, but it's usually about my rentals or my debt, not about my my wealth or income. Um, so yeah, that that's kind of the three main businesses that, that we have. And the beautiful thing is, um, through a lot of trial and error and, and, you know, figuring things out and working, you know, crazy hours, we have a, a, a COO that runs each one of those businesses. So my business partner, Lucas and I are kind of the bigger picture trying to, I focus on social media. He focuses on kind of like being a CEO for these companies. Um, and we have a, a, a guy that runs each of those companies that everybody reports to the day to day. They get compensated well, but, um, that's off of our plates and out of our mind. And we're focused on, getting enough uh, money and connections to buy and bring an NBA team to St. Louis to own a billion dollars in real estate and to have Hmm. a billion dollar um, yearly uh, organization. So those are our goals and we can't do that in the weeds. So that's kind of a a next progression. You're asking where we are. That's kind of where we're we're trying to get to is more of that higher level stuff. 
beautiful, smart. I mean, oh yeah. Honestly, for someone who didn't have an entrepreneurial like like just what you just said right there, so many people don't understand. You know, being like, in the weeds is not ideal, brother. Exactly. <laughs> that's it's so hard to get people to understand. Then that's a lot of what we talk about on this podcast because we're we're interviewing people with just in general business who have scaled and this and that. And the number one uh, common denominator amongst all the people who are successful is they're they're getting they go from working in the business to working on the business, and you're working at where your core competency is. Like clearly you're very good at explaining, you know, exactly teaching all this stuff like that. Your partner's, you know, doing good on that. Then you have your COOs running everything. I mean, that's how you scale. You will get to your billion dollars a year. You will get that team to to St. Louis. Like it will happen because you got you guys have that mentality. Um, so before we ask our last question, Sam, where can people find you? Um, you know, if they want to hear about your mentorship program, they want to learn more about all the methods that you spoke about, where can they find you online? Is there a website? Yeah, for sure. So uh, whatever social media your app um, you're on, I, I'm probably on it. And, and the name is at Sam Faster Freedom. So my name is Sam. The, the brand company is Faster Freedom. So um, at Sam Faster Freedom on whatever social media you're on, you know, if you're not on Twitter, don't go follow me on Twitter because having, you know, the, the algorithms don't like, um, you know, empty followers. So whatever you're on, um, if you want to learn more, follow <laughs> me. I give away free advice all the time. Um, FasterFreedom.com just to learn a little bit more about what we do. And then the Faster Freedom Show podcast is, is a podcast that Luke's and I have. So he's my business partner been best friends for um you know 25 years it's the only content that we shoot together he does other stuff he's kind of behind the scenes so it's really fun we we cut it up so it's a really fun podcast so check that out and then if you want to like contact me like y'all did just hit me up on instagram i'll um i'll get to the message within a day or two i'm still the one that answers those so um if you want to actually uh you know communicate with me just um contact me there and if you're interested in the mentorship we can talk about it but start by following me and, and kind of getting a feel for everything and if you feel like it's right just hit me up about that Beautiful, beautiful. Perfect. Sam, so our last question that we ask everybody, what is the best piece of advice? If you could give one piece of advice to any of our listeners who are, you know, just starting out, um, you know, I guess in real estate at this point, like what would be the best piece of advice that has, you know, really impacted you that you could pass on? All right, I'm going to do one. I got two or three, but I'm going to stick to one. I'm going to follow the rules. Um, the the biggest one for me, and um, I'm not a woo-woo guy, but I guess I'm turning into that the more successful people I talk to. I'll pre, you know, say the statement with, I have fortunately been able to talk to in-person um, conversations one-on-one with two with two billionaires. And that's a lot of freaking money. The difference between a million and a billion is astronomical. So these people are not special because they're billionaires. Um, you know, they're, or they're not, yeah, they're not special because they're billionaires. They're billionaires because they're special and their mindset. And this is kind of what I've learned from them, seeing, you know, their success, reading about other people's success, seeing, you know, whatever I've been able to do and then around other people like that is success is so freaking simple. It's not even funny, no matter what you're doing. Literally the difference between somebody that's successful and somebody that's not is perseverance and ignorance. Like just don't give up. Like every single person tries something and every single person fails. But the people that get up another time beyond when they fail are the people that win. It's not the people with more money. It's not the people that are smarter. It's not the people that have a higher education. It's not the people that are a certain sex. It's people that continue to get up after they fail. Like people that avoid failure, avoid success. So you just continue. It's so simple and it sounds like duh, but you just keep going. The people that don't win are the people that give up. The people that win are the people that screw up and then don't give up. So you just have to continue to push through and you eventually will get there. It might not be on your time frame, but there is like a time frame for everybody to get where they want to go. Just so many people have that instant gratification gene where they want it now. And if they don't get it now, they move on. So just don't give up. And I promise you, you will get there and not giving up while it's simple is not easy. There's a difference. That was awesome. Hell yeah. Man, that was I'm a good one. Clip that one, my, Costa. Yeah. I'm ready to jump out of my chair. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Sam, thank you so much for your time. This was awesome. I mean, super educational, uh, really a master class. You provided a ton of value. Um, I can't thank you enough for your time. I'm a big fan. I'm gonna, I can't wait to watch you get to where, you know, to where you're going, which is that billion dollar mark. Uh, I have no doubt in my mind that you'll get there and uh, we'll be rooting you on here from Boston. Awesome. I, I appreciate you guys and Patriots suck. <laughs> <laughs> cut that out, Costa. Yeah, cut that one out. Thanks, they do Sam. suck right now, Loki.